A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 149 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, and your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as on Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me like that dropping feeling you get in your gut when you learn of a sequel that doesn't exist, the EU guru himself, the count of those two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! I'm free! Free! Well, free of, I don't know, free teaching, I guess the best way to put it. Ladies and gentlemen, I got the freaking job! So, very, very soon, I will be teaching entirely online while leading the virtual coaching thing for new teachers entirely online, uh, which, for the standpoint of this audience, hopefully means more episodes from the Star Wars Home Video Library, possibly from the Star Wars Library, though I kind of doubt it, and possibly, in fact, I would say likely more frequent versions of the Star Wars Timeline Gold. So, uh, Star Wars Freedom! Because of teaching freedom, it has been uh, an interesting week. Although it is balanced, uh, my wife's uh, wreck last week, I don't know if we we had spoken since the wreck, uh, had been in a wreck in which our Mustang was heavily damaged and she was injured and we didn't know how bad because it wasn't something you could see from the outside. Uh, She now has been diagnosed with basically a concussion, some brain bruising um, that should get better. Um, some sprains, like neck, back sprains, and stuff like that. Uh, and the car itself is absolutely totaled. So it's it's just, you know, like Star Wars, right? Balance in the Force. Good news, bad news. But uh, uh, I guess part of the good news is we're wrapping up a bizarre series of episodes here. And I guess, wow, next week is 150. We were going to cover... A different story. Maybe this should be our, you know, dark horse looking back thing because 150 is kind of a cool number. Truly, actually, it is. You know, I got a question though: if it's balance that you're feeling, or if you may have Zane Carrick's innate ability with reversals of fortune, because I mean, those are pretty extreme, man. Yeah, isn't it though? I mean, it kind of seems like that's always what's happening to us, though. It's always the uh, the one begets the other. Um, just as she's getting better after the gallbladder surgery, now here's the car accident, etc. Although I'm wondering if the car accident thing was a good thing. Um, it's a Mustang, a 2001 Mustang, or it was a Mustang. <laughs> now it's a hunk of metal. Um, it was a 2001 Mustang I'd had since right before I moved down to uh, the Atlanta area in summer of 2002. It had a good 150,000 miles on it. It was probably going to need a new transmission at some point anyway. So I'm wondering if the fact that it was hit and it was totaled is a good thing because it means no deductible on repairs to something that might still have to be repaired anyway soon. 
Um, whatever money we get from the insurance company, we don't know what it'll be yet, but whatever that is will allow us to, you know, put something towards another, maybe not a, a new car, but some type of used, hopefully reliable vehicle that'll get us through the rest of the four years or whatever that I'm paying on our Kia that I tend to drive. So maybe all of this is playing together into a good thing, but yeah, very much a Zane Carrick, hey, the Force doesn't want me dead. It doesn't like me, but it doesn't want me dead type of things. Or it's an opportunity for you to create your own insurance. The other shoe drop insurance, because you know it's coming. Reminds me of, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Will Smith on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You know, what kind of insurance do you have? Your fault. As in, <laughs> I don't need insurance because it's your fault. <laughs> Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Like, whose fault was it anyway? Questions that have bothered you for a long time. Did Han shoot first? Or simple ones that flexed you off and on? Where is that hyperspace coming from on the ghost? You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we continue to explore Dark Horse Comics' The Star Wars, based on the original rough draft screenplay by George Lucas. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. That's right. This time we are taking a look at the last two issues and a special Zero issue. Basically, halfway through the series, for whatever reason, I'm assuming because they needed time for the production schedule to catch up and everything, they basically stopped and left the series hanging right around the end of 2013 and gave us this Zero issue that's a little bit different than the Zero issues we've gotten with other series before. And then they went back after that, and in February of 2014, they picked up with the back half of this series. So we've actually already talked about a couple of the issues released after that Zero issue. But since the Zero issue is more of a guide and a sketchbook, we're going to tackle that after we tackle issues 7 and 8, which are the two left of the story. Uh, we left off... In a situation where Princess Leia was in danger, our heroes were split up, Anakin had just met the Wookiees, and it, we were sort of heading towards the final confrontation, wondering if what we're going to see is like a combination of the end of the A New Hope that we got, a battle with the Death Star, and then perhaps maybe a confrontation with the Wookiees like the Ewoks back at the end of Return of the Jedi. And what we get here is sort of a cross between the two. But with so many bizarre happenings that don't make a hell of a lot of logical sense, that personally I'm left doing a massive Wookiee-sized facepalm here. Um, we will find that there is almost no purpose at all to Biggs and Wendy, the younger siblings, the two little boys, the younger siblings of Leia, existing at all in this story. We will find that the concept of Jedi and Sith is very muddied. And the Knight of Sith, Prince Valorum, that's in this story serves little purpose except for a deus ex machina in a way we would not necessarily expect these days from a Sith. And we will find that the use of the Wookiees, while somewhat like what we got with the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi, which is something that we'll get into because of how Lucas's vision of what the Wookiees should be in the whole idea of savages versus the Empire thing has changed, um, the way the Wookiees are used in the end of this story has me sit back and I feel like I'm channeling... I believe the character's name was Cooney from UHF. Stupid! 
you're so stupid! Because the end of the story is idiotic. Absolutely idiotic. Um, it undermines the entire rest of it. If this so far has been a weird trip to see where Star Wars had been before it was reshaped into A New Hope, and in many cases so far we've been saying, wow, it's a good thing he went back and tweaked it into something different, otherwise it couldn't have been the phenomenon that it was. This version of the Star Wars, honestly, its ending falls flatter than the ending of The Phantom Menace with Anakin's, we'll try spinning, that's a good trick, and lucky shot aboard uh, the Trade Federation control ship, or Jar Jar being a freaking general here. The way this story ends is ridiculous. Absolutely anticlimactically ridiculous. Uh, to a point where I have to change what I said. It's not that if this had come out the way that this was written as more of a Flash Gordon-style serial, that if it had come out like that, it would have been maybe a flash in the pan and not have been able to become the phenomenon that Star Wars is. I dare say that because of this ending, if this had shown up in theaters in this form, it would have been universally panned and bashed and been a flop for that year at the cinemas. The ending is that bad. Well, and you almost wonder if it, if the ending is, is close to one of those back to the future, you know, to be continued endings. You know, I mean, I, that for me, I think was the thing that really irked me was it, it had that sense of all of a sudden it stops, which where, you know, Spider-Man two did, did something similar to that, but they succeeded this one. It left me feeling like, well, as I said, you know, you, you think you're going to continue to explore something here and there's a sequel coming, but no. And I think for me, I think that was the, the thing that made this smack the hardest. I mean, when you get to the very last page of the last issue, it has a promise there, but it doesn't fulfill it. And knowing that that promise is just empty and hollow and there's nothing to it aside from words on paper makes the ending, as you say, it, it just really suffers all the way around. Uh, the reversal of fortune from one of the main characters here did not see that coming. And while it could have been interesting in the story if it had more context, the way it comes across is, gosh, I almost want to say campy. I mean, it, it come across so weird that I had no idea what in the heck was going on. I was like, well, what's the point of all the calm gas and all this other stuff? I mean, there's whole angles of of this character that, that just are, are thrown out the window for me. But at the same time, it, it piqued my interest, but it all wraps up without giving you any satisfaction to the interest that they piqued. So it, it is it is just a constant failure. It's it's like adding to the story, but you're not adding to it in a good way. You're adding to it elements that actually hurt it. And that's the hardest part about this. But for the overall project, it's it's that same concept that we talked about in the first issue uh, and we mentioned in the second one. It is an interesting look into what could have been, but I'm with you on this one, Nathan. I think that how we got this, I don't even think we'd have had a cult classic. We'd have just had a, a, a Star Wars holiday special all over again. One of those where you watch it to cringe. I mean... There are aspects of Star Wars that we know and love, but if this was all we would have got, we wouldn't have had that, oh, hey, it's it's that one aspect. No, it would have just been, what is this crap? Although I will disagree on the ending aspect. The ending of the story in the story itself is awful. But when you take it and take a look instead at the last page and how it sort of leaves it to be continued type of thing, that actually worked fine for me. There's plenty of times that we've seen stories, uh, television sci-fi stories especially, 
that never wind up seeing a sequel. And they just set it up to make you feel like, wow, this is going to be something cool. Maybe it could continue. Um, you mentioned Back to the Future as the ending. And yeah, for years it was, you know, and to be continued. You know, roads where we're going, we don't need roads. Except, remember that Back to the Future wasn't meant to be to be continued. When Back to the Future first premiered in theaters, there was no to be continued. They added to be continued as a joke when they put out the VHS release of the first film, and that joke grew so much that it led to eventually there being Back to the Futures 2 and 3. Um, the film by itself stood alone with To Be Continued for years, and people just thought, oh, well, that's cool, but sadly it looks like they won't make another one. That's kind of what this left me feeling like. Yeah, maybe it's cool that we might see something in the future, but even if it's not intended, at least the fact that they tack that onto the end makes you feel like this is part of a bigger saga and there's more of the story to tell, which gives it a context beyond the story itself. So that didn't bother me. The way that the actual story of this tale plays out really did. Well, see, and it wouldn't have bothered me so much. In any other medium, I think I'd be okay with it. But for me, it's like this is the sneak peek into Lucas's original concepts for Star Wars. And it, it just feels like one more lie tacked on, you know, like, well, even on the rough draft, he had plans for more. But in this case, like, they're open with it. No, he didn't. But I'm like, from the aspect of a George Lucas fan, like, you're always like this whole aspect of, well, he's got this great vision for things. And it's like, you go back to this rough draft and it's like, no, he just slapped a word down on paper. I mean, you know, we attribute in a lot of ways, we attribute Lucas's genius to the same level of evilness that Palpatine has, you know, like Palpatine can plot and and. And, and come up with all these great schemes and ideas and everything latches together and it's just brilliance and action. And I think, you know, Lucas got lucky in a lot of things and we attribute his luck to brilliance and action as well. I just see it kind of like a lot of those movies that come out these days where you can see they're seeding things into it for a sequel, only then it does so poorly at the box office that there is no sequel forthcoming, that it's just an absolute dud. And you're like, um, yeah. Maybe you shouldn't have added those hints of the sequel in there because even if you were trying to force their hand to making one, uh, you suck and you're not getting one. You know, that's kind of the way that I feel about this, that this was a way of seeding things for the future that never would have come to pass because of this story. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you, it works. It hooked me for a minute. I was like, oh, there's going to be another one. And then I'm like, no, on the letter page, we'll, we'll get to that as we get in. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. We left off, of course, with a sticky situation. Our opening crawl of issue number seven reads... Escaping the Imperial attack on Aqualai, the ship carrying General Luke Skywalker and his companions is shot down above the jungle planet Yavin. When their escape pods land in separate parts of the forest of the Gargantuas, Luke, Han Solo, and the droid 3PO decide their best course is to protect Princess Leia's two younger brothers, trusting Luke's apprentice, Anakin Starkiller, and plucky little R2 to look after Leia. But Princess Leia is captured by slave trappers, and Anakin, attempting to rescue her, is carried off by the native Wookiees. Meanwhile, General Skywalker and the others encounter anthropologist Owen Lars, who warns them of the Empire's presence on the planet. 
very you know, Clone Wars-esque. Just needs a fortune cookie. So at this point, um, Biggs and Wendy and 3PO and Starkiller and Han Solo are all with Owen and Beru Lars, who instead of being moisture farmers on Tatooine, are anthropologists here on Yavin, living in sort of a Kashyyyk-style uh, hut in the trees type of situation. Not quite the way we would see with the Ewoks, much more Wookiee-like in this sense, which makes sense given the Wookiees themselves being in the story. And it just so happens that Owen has a couple of jet sticks, which are basically staps from Episode 1 that we saw the uh, Stormtroopers riding on earlier. And Han and Luke set out on those to go out and try to find Anakin and Leia, while 3PO and the two boys are left with the Larses. Meanwhile, back at the Wookiee camp where Anakin has just sort of proven himself by beating one of their warriors, Anakin and R2 are ready to get the heck out of there and look for Leia. Now, during this big celebration of the Wookiees, they try to slip away, but one of the Wookiees, Chewbacca, decides to follow him away. This is one of the Wookiees that Anakin saved from the trappers that looked like the bounty hunter designs we see in uh, Empire Strikes Back. And because Anakin saved his life, he's following along. There's no comment about a life debt, but it certainly seems like that is the case. Fortunately, they're relatively close to where the trappers were, and Han and Luke find the trappers' dead bodies, having been killed by the Wookiees and Anakin, right around the same time that Anakin, R2, and Chewbacca show up. Fortunately, Han Solo, remember, green reptilian type guy in this case, not the Corellian, uh, he's a Eurelian in this case, uh, is able to translate and says, yep, this is Chewbacca, son of Ozituk, much like Atachuk, of course, uh, Chewbacca's father in the Legends continuity, the one who enjoys the uh, Wookiee porn, as we see in the holiday special, uh, virtual Wookiee porn, uh, Prince of the Sawas, as opposed to Jawas, a very powerful Wookiee tribe. And it seems they've made Starkiller, not 3PO as in Return of the Jedi, a god. So apparently the Wookiees have now got some kind of allegiance uh, and worship for Anakin, to which Luke gives a good grief facepalm. Literally, <laughs> a facepalm in the artwork. They go check out the Imperial outpost of Mavasi, not Masasi, with the idea being that if they could get inside and get control of it, they could use some of the resources of that Imperial outpost to get off the planet and get Princess Leia, of course, to Ofuchi once they get a hold of her. We quickly jump back to the Lars homestead, where stormtroopers burst in, kill Biggs's little thumper creature that he met, named Amber, like a little, uh, sort of a hairy, lizardy looking thing, and capture, well, everybody. Leaving them alone with the Larses apparently was not a very good idea. As our heroes mount their attack on the Imperial base, they basically take the Imperials by surprise using Ewok-style methods of attack. Um, jungle vines turned into uh, nooses, for instance, or uh, swinging down heavy rocks on ropes to smash Imperial tanks open. Um, they're basically able to overcome the Imperial defenders, despite the fact that the Wookiees basically are carrying spears and shields, and that's basically it. The only ones actually carrying modern weapons are Han, Luke, and Anakin at this point. They get inside the Imperial base, we get a cool two-page splash image with no dialogue whatsoever of the battle inside as the Wookiees, tons of them, 
are just tearing apart the Imperial soldiers, and they're able to capture the base relatively easily, including a bunch of starfighters that look like what we think of as Y-Wings, albeit uh, sketch, Macquarie sketch variants of the Y-Wings. Turns out R2-D2 has scans and such of the battle station and is able to present them, and basically our heroes come up with kind of a ridiculous plan. What's going to happen is that Anakin, dressed basically in what we think of as TIE pilot gear here, um, it's a Sky Raider disguise, they call it, is going to go with R2 in one of these Y-wing-looking ships, albeit a one that has a bigger cockpit. You can actually fit a couple people side by side and such in the cockpit at this point. Um, gonna go to the battle station and try to rescue Leia because they found that no less than 10 hours ago, Leia was taken from the base. She'd been captured, brought to the base. She's been taken from the base to the battle station itself. And while Anakin goes and does that, Luke and Han are going to train the Wookiees to be starfighter pilots, to fly these Y-Wings in battle against the battle station. I'll go into my thoughts on that when we get to it a little bit later. Uh, we quickly jump to the Emperor's space fortress, right, the battle station, where Darth Vader, remember in this case an Imperial general, not a Sith Lord, that's uh, the Knight of Sith Valorum, a separate character here, where Darth Vader is questioning Leia who is uh, held by her feet and her arms in this uh, torture contraption that can electrocute her. Uh, her, of course, having that Padme-esque wardrobe malfunction. One leg of her pants ripped off, one sleeve of her shirt uh, ripped off, but hanging there, essentially looking more the worse for wear. And they're waiting for these interrogators, these supposed doctors from Alderaan, remember, Alderaan is essentially Coruscant, the Imperial capital in this case, to come and basically torture secrets out of her. We jump back to Yavin, where there's an Imperial tank carrying the Larses and the two boys and 3PO, which is then attacked by Wookiees. And they're all freed! Woohoo! Yippee! And we briefly see uh, a Y-Wing training session with Han, Luke, and the Wookiees. Speaking of Y-Wings, Anakin's Y-Wing finally arrives at the battle station is not really questioned except to say, hey, you know, your ship's from Yavin. We lost contact with them. What's going on? He just says, oh, well, there's uh, an inversion just east of Bullpup Station. It's a real mess out there. And Anakin is allowed to just plug R2 into the computer systems to figure out where Leia is being held. While making his way there, he is separated from R2 because it's a high-security area. Droids, androids are not allowed to go down that direction. And he just sort of slips away at the right moment so he can start looking for Leia. As we end issue number seven, we see the Wookiees painting war symbols on these Y-Wings as they're just about ready to fight. <laughs> we have Lars saying, that is Owen, we've made contact with the underground on Aquilae. Security is tight, but Datos says they'll await your orders, Datos being one of the characters we saw back at the spaceport. Good, says Luke. Luke, Han says, it's time. They're ready to go up. And as the Wookiees give their rawr, rawr, warg type of comments, now we'll see if your plan works. It has to, or it's death for the princess, Anakin, and freedom. They're about to take off into what's sort of the Battle of Yavin, the Battle of Aquilae 
again with the Space Fortress as we end Issue 7 and its ridiculous premise that only gets more ridiculous as we go. There are things that jump out, like, you know, the crawl. Why is Luke and Han's best chance to save the twins? You know, I mean, I don't, that I don't get. Or, or is that supposed to be like a play on words that I'm just misreading? Like, it's their best chance to save the twins because the twins are about to die? Like, <laughs> like I, I mean, is that is that still because the pods were losing their power and that's the threat to the twins? Like... Because I just don't understand it. Their best chance is to save the twins. So let's leave the twins to get captured. Like, that made no sense whatsoever. Uh, you know, the Starkiller being a god was an interesting little twist. I mean, 3PO being god kind of felt like it worked more because, you know, he was a droid. He was metal. He was artificial. With Starkiller, it's like, okay, so he bested a warrior. That makes him a god? Like, wow, these Wookiees are lucky a, a real Jedi hadn't shown up long before this. I mean, <laughs> that could have been a lot worse. Uh, the two-page spread, though, with the Wookiee assault, I like that. That, to me, that's what I would expect from a Wookiee assault. So so seeing that play out, like at this point, that works. You know, I'm, I'm with you when it gets to what we get toward the end with the Wookiees jumping in the cockpits. But the Vader and Leia scene, why in the hell is Leia spread eagle like that? What the hell? Like, I mean, that whole Vader versus Leia torture scene is totally different in A New Hope than this. Father torturing daughter, although you don't know it at the time. Little twisted. This one is just creepy. Like, when, when Darth Vader starts electrocuting her in 70s, he's like, ha ha! Like, the look on his face is like, I don't know, maybe by not having a mask, it just adds a level of demonic to the character. Whereas Vader in, in A New Hope, you know, you can't see his face, so it just makes him overall creepier. It's like, you know, and then finding out its own daughter, it's like a level of evil gets added to it. But at this, it's like, just the way the character's drawn, I get that same feeling of evil, but in a different angle. Uh, it was interesting to find out that R2 is a B-23 droid, which was odd, but okay. There are a lot of weird things that kind of get thrown in along the way. Um, near the end, though, one of the, one of the paintings that I like the most, aside from the, uh, the good grief that you mentioned, which which I had to take a picture of because that's just too great. I got to make that into a facepalm meme, mem, meme. I'm not sure how to say that one. But it's when uh, Owen's making the comment about the orders and Luke says good. The look on his face, like, I really dig how they draw this character. And, and yes, Rebels has used a somewhat model of this character in Rebels, but this version of the character, the gritty with the beard, with the, the way the hair is combed, has like an Obi-Wan-esque Episode 3 look. I'd like to see that model of the character make its way in. I mean, the other one has very much uh, the, the first issue of the series, kind of that Buck Rogers feel to it. This one, he's all in black. You know, he kind of almost has a Mara Jade in a cat suit look going on. But I don't know. Like, I don't. there's like a George Clooney-esque aspect to this character that like I'm, I'm digging on. I don't know. This is where... I don't know. I guess I was expecting more. And granted, I read the scripts a long time ago. I was expecting more from the scripts, too, or the the, uh, the rough draft version of the story and whatnot. It's just, okay, a couple things. And, and we'll get to more things that don't make a whole lot of sense and we're extraneous and kind of pointless as we get into the next issue. But the boys. Basically, the boys have little to no relevance to this story whatsoever. We've seen them, you know, Biggs and Wendy. One, they had to be gotten off the planet, so they needed to be stuck into these 
power cell needing stable uh, stasis units that they're going to carry on their backs. And having to make sure they have power was something driving the characters when they didn't really need it because they needed to get her out of there anyway and get her to a Fuchi anyway. They don't need the boys to be another impetus to get there. It's like the only reason the boys were there was to require a power cell so that Anakin's father could simply die. So that Kane couldn't join them on their journey, he had to pull out his own power cell and croak so the boys could stay alive. Because then, at this point, they're just left and captured, but then immediately freed and don't play a big role in the story from then on. What's the point of having the two little boys? Unless it was meant to be a gateway for little kids to be able to get into the series, kind of like Ahsoka at 14 was meant to draw in young female viewers into the Clone Wars, I see little to no point for the boys to be in this story at all. They are a waste of space, page time, and screen time, and something, thankfully, that Lucas cut as he worked his way forward to eventually get to the A New Hope that we know and love. See, the only thing I think the boys' relevance at this point is, is just to be a pain in the ass. I mean, that's the only purpose they're serving. They're the constant tripping of your foot, stubbing your toe on the side of your bed. Like, the constant, everything's going good, and oh, hey, some crackhead just wiped out my Mustang. Like, ah! If if they're not irrelevant enough, they add to the irrelevance with the, Look, I just found a thumper! The thumper's name is Amber! (laughs) It dies on the next page. You know, the kids are irrelevant, and the kids' little side stories are irrelevant to the entire picture. So Biggs and Wendy, glad they're gone, because they serve no purpose. But then you've got this whole thing with the Wookiees, okay? Context here. This is supposed to be Lucas's original vision based on his rough draft screenplay. And we all know that a big part of the reason why we see what we see in Return of the Jedi and Revenge of the Sith is because of how Lucas viewed the Wookiees. He wanted to have this concept in the story, that we would have a primitive culture being able to rise up against a technologically superior empire and help the rebels win. It's sort of the ultimate underdog being able to defeat the technology, that what is natural will defeat what is artificial, etc., etc. He didn't wind up getting to do that with A New Hope because of the way that he had to constrain the story to fit into one film, and he had to cut a bunch of stuff out. By the time we get to Return of the Jedi, we've already had one Wookiee. It was Chewbacca, but he was with Han. And Chewbacca has been shown to be technologically proficient. He's not a savage, even though he looks like he should be, at least in the way that Lucas at one point was talking about the character. So you can't do a bunch of Wookiees in Return of the Jedi, or it doesn't make sense for them to be primitive, because they should be technologically proficient, unless you're going to have to come up with some way to say that Well, Chewbacca is the exception, blah, blah, blah. So Lucas went the opposite direction and instead went with small bear characters instead of large ones and went with the Ewoks. And the Ewoks get to do all that technologically non-proficient stuff. They're using logs. They're using rocks. They're using ropes made out of uh, the twine and stuff that they're able to find within the jungle and such. Uh, The one time we really get a chance to see the Ewoks try to do anything with technology it's when you got the one, I think it's Paplu, hopping on the speeder bike and doing something rather rash and zipping away, and he damn near gets himself killed by doing it. Um, the Ewoks are the prototypical 
primitive culture. And they are able to help rise up against the empire in their primitive ways. When it comes to technology, they just don't get it. Heck, even in the Ewoks cartoon, when it comes to technology, we see the only way they're able to control uh, a little Imperial shuttle pod thing that they see in one of the later episodes of Season 2 is, if I remember right, one of them jumps up and their butt hits a button on the controls and like an autopilot kicks in. Um, when we look at them in the Ewok telemovies, uh, even their nemesis, uh, the King Tarak, is fairly primitive, and he comes from a culture that arrived there on a ship. What is he constantly talking about the power cell of the ship as? The power! Thinking it's some kind of magical, mystical thing, okay? Ewoks, very primitive, the way that Wookiees were supposedly originally meant to be. And eventually, Lucas does get to have his Ewok battle in Revenge of the Sith, but it is tweaked to fit better with the Wookiees that we know thanks to Chewbacca. They may have technology based somewhat on nature, but they're relatively technologically proficient. Uh, the catamarans or whatever you call the different ships of theirs, they are all uh, somewhat more technologically advanced than you would expect of something like the Ewoks. The Wookiees are not primitives. They are simply different by the time we get to Revenge of the Sith. Here, Lucas tried to do both. You've got the Ewok type version of the uh, the, the primitive savages, uh, they even think of Luke because of his use of the Force and his ability to beat the, the other Wookiee as a god, very much like the, oh, the primitive Ewoks see C-3PO and think he's a god, leaving out anything from the Lost in Time stuff within uh, the comics, the Star Comics stuff and everything. Um, and they're able to defeat the Imperials initially using spears and shields and things using ropes and rocks. But then he jumps into Chewbacca-style Wookiee territory, which makes no sense whatsoever, with the Wookiees being trained to fly Y-wing-type starfighters into battle against the Death Star. He's taking basically the family dog, as at one point he referred to Chewbacca, the family dog, these primitives, these monkey men, these type guys, and turning them into effing rogue squadron in the span of a matter of hours or perhaps days. And it doesn't make any logical sense. None. Suspension of disbelief is something that lets us believe in things like the Force in Star Wars, but there must be a logical consistency to the universe. There's got to be a sense of a through line for these different tales and these different versions of technology and logic and everything else that goes with all of this. We'll buy droids with feelings. But there has to be a logical progression within the story. And what we get here is ungodly illogical to go from these... It'd be like taking a chimpanzee that's not, you know, Planet of the Apes style. And don't get me going on Planet of the Apes. I, I can't stand the Planet of the Apes franchise and just uh, the premise behind a lot of it. Although I've got friends who are huge in it. Rich Hanley, love you to death, but I'm not a Planet of the Apes guy. Um... <laughs> it, it, it's like taking a chimpanzee, not out of a lab where they've been testing him and making him super intelligent so he can take over the world or anything, but taking a chimp straight up out of the jungle, putting him down in front of a computer, and having him hammer out the code to create the next version of Windows. <laughs> it doesn't work. From a storytelling standpoint, it breaks the ending of this story, and... It's where this entire thing falls apart. It has its ugh moments at different points and its frustrating moments, and you can see how Lucas changed things to make more sense. This ending, thank God he changed it, because this ending is horrible. Even 
Anakin blowing up things using his intuitive use of the Force and happy accidents and coincidences in Episode 1. Even the Gungans defeating the droid army makes more sense than this. Because the Gungans are given that weird version of their own technology that is seeded throughout Episode 1 before they go into battle. We get nothing like that here with the Wookiees. The Wookiees should be doing little more than getting inside the ships, seeing all the technology, freaking out, and pooping everywhere. It makes no <laughs> sense. Well, you know, Han should have offered them a red or a blue pill, you know. Here, take the blue pill. It's full of nanites, and they'll uh, take over your brain, and they'll be able to interface with the ships and practically fly it for you. All you got to do is think a direction, think shoot. No, you know, you definitely interlace some some issues there with the ending. I, you know, and it makes me wonder, was this like Lucas's first retcon swap on the Wookiees for Ewoks? I mean, it could have been any other race, but hey, we already have Wookiees. Let's just make them short and then call it a separate race. I mean, that in one aspect is an illustration of how Lucas can sometimes take the lazy storyteller route. You know, he's already got an idea, so let's just modify that and retool that to work instead of, you know, thinking outside the box and coming up with a new idea. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, when I see that one two panel spread where the Wookiees are doing all the, the tearing stuff up, they're on the ground, they're on the feet, you know, it, it's a foot battle. That makes sense. When we get to the space and everything, I'm with you. I mean, it, it definitely doesn't feel like days have passed. And maybe that's what they needed to really sell this. Maybe had Wal Han and, and, and Luke were hiding out at the Lars, maybe then they were training, you know, that would have made it an easier sell. But it definitely feels like they had one hour of training, and, and, and Luke especially really is forcing it, whereas Han's like, I want to throw up. I mean, you know, Han's having a natural reaction, like, these guys can't fly, we're doomed. And, I mean, maybe Luke's using the Force on him or something. I, I don't know. I mean, I really have to start reaching out in my in-universe explanation apologist ways here because I can't come up with anything besides just it gets really bad at the end. <laughs> I mean, it's cool and it makes sense. All the way up through the issue, right up to the point where it's, oh, we're going to train them to be Y-Wing pilots. We're going to train them to go up there and do a space battle against Imperial forces. That doesn't make sense. If he had stuck with the Ewok-esque angle, kept them primitive, it would have made sense. And it would have been a technologically inferior or primitive race rising up against the Empire and helping the Rebels win. It would have worked in that sense the same way that that built-in allegory works for the Ewoks in Return of the Jedi. But here he tries to have it both ways, and it just absolutely doesn't work. And to his credit, he recognized that it doesn't work. And, and I wouldn't necessarily even turn around and slight him for, as you were saying, sort of not being willing when he's changing around with his ideas to think outside the box. This is a guy who had a lot of ideas of his own. And a lot of ways he wanted to approach it, and he kept swapping back and forth, and he came up with names that sounded cool, and at one point, if he doesn't use it here, he'll use it somewhere else, like Utapau, winding up being used, of course, later in Episode 3 and that sort of thing. Uh, I think there's something to be said for someone who is a, a creator of a saga, wanting to take concepts that he's already come up with that he didn't get to use, and bring them back somehow, because I think in that sense it feels like the whole thing has been a creative process, that these abandoned ideas uh, aren't actually abandoned. They're just waiting there to be picked up and tweaked again. It's kind of uh, the storytelling equivalent of what he says about films, about how films are never completed. They're merely abandoned. 
And in this case, ideas aren't thrown away, they're merely set aside to see where they might be able to be used again. That I can buy into. But it's this sort of, uh, the creative process behind this version of the Wookiees that I question, because it seemed like he was going more for, let's do something bizarre than looking for some type of logical consistency. But again, that's something that happens as he goes through and refines it, as it gets refined on film, as it gets edited together, Ben Burt's help, as a film, it becomes something very different and something that sets a standard for films going forward, becomes a real modern myth. But this version of it, you can tell that yet yeah, this is not just you know, one of many drafts, because there were many drafts. This is the first draft that was a full script and not just a basic synopsis. And you could tell there is a long, long way to go. For well, those trying to read this as a comic story, though, I think they're going to find this ridiculous if they try to read this as a story in and of itself. It's like we've said before. Don't read this as a cool Star Wars story or a cool alternate universe Star Wars story. You're going to be disappointed. Read it as a historical lesson in what Star Wars could have been in its rough draft form, and that's it. A history lesson. Yeah. You know, well, and I was thinking about it more. I'm trying to find ways to make it seem like it makes more sense with the Wookiees, and I think I've got it. Okay, you know, you brought up thinking of them as, as chimpanzees brought out from the forest. Now, what if that mainly comes from the fact that we cannot understand what the Wookiees are saying, therefore it sounds like it's coming across more animalistic in nature to us, but what if they're supposed to be more like Native Americans? You know, when the Native Americans went from bow and arrows to rifles and how just that change of technology was all they needed to really up their game. I mean, when you look at that, what happened out in the Modoc and the lava beds and stuff and how the, you know, a small group of less than 300 or so Modocs were able to hold off the cavalry of the U.S. Army. You know, I mean, it's, it's just one of those situations that maybe that was what he was going for. You know, maybe they were closer to how the Native Americans were because, you know, if you look on that last panel, all the Wookiees have painted their Y-wings kind of like how Native Americans will paint their horses before going into war. So maybe maybe part of the issue that you and I are having is, is that we're giving the Wookiees too little credit for intelligence. I mean, maybe they're a lot smarter than, you know, that the, 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 the barking and stuff is coming across maybe that that's the, the problem we're having well we do have instances where what they're saying is being translated and that sort of works um there's a point at which uh, in the next issue when we get to it one of them uh refers to head for the red monster when basically doing a kamikaze attack uh, into uh, part of the Death Star, the battle station that's going to wind up causing a chain reaction, etc., etc., that's going to eventually blow the thing up. Um, but even with that, I could see the Native American angle or any other culture. I mean, you could take the same thing of like what happens uh, when Moroccans get their hands on some of the first guns that ever make it into Africa in the hands of someone other than Europeans or people from the Middle East where they're then able to defeat the, the native cultures like Songhai and, and the last of the great African empires falls to outsiders and all that kind of stuff. Um, I would see that if this was the Wookiees are primitive using swords and shields, but they're very smart. So here, give them some blaster rifles. Let them control those tanks, maybe. And certainly let them control something like the staff or something where it's just pointed in a direction and hit a button and zoom, you're off. But... Having them be able to fly Y-Wings in a space combat type dogfight against what basically is the prototype version of the Death Star in Lucas's mind is like taking a Native American and saying, hey, put down that bow and arrow. We're talking back in, you know, 
1700s, 1600s, give or take, say, hey, put down that bow and arrow, and here, let me show you how to fly this F-15. It's too big a jump to make logical sense. I think that's the issue that I have. It's not that they're picking up and using technology. It's that they're picking up and using technology way beyond their reach, unless most of these ships are basically autopilot. Unless it's like you were saying, and all they have to do is say, shoot that, go left, go right. But to actually have to fly the ships doesn't make a lot of sense. Or fly, remember, fly in formation. Seriously? <laughs> I try. I swift left, right, left, right, and then I go Wazaki. Your other left. Anyway, um, so let's check out the issue in which this all unfolds, because there's yet another leap in logic that won't make a whole lot of sense uh, to modern readers as we go through issue number eight. So we pick up aboard the Space Fortress, which in this case in the opening crawl is capitalized Space and Fortress, so presumably that's that equivalent of saying Death Star. Uh, Anakin, who's already undercover, looking like a pilot, smacks some stormtroopers and tries to take their armor, tries a couple of times to get armor that fits in a helmet that fits and can't seem to fight one that fits his head. Uh, maybe he should have taken down his top knot and tried again. But you see Anakin now dressed as a stormtrooper except his head exposed, which does absolutely nothing to hide him, of course, racing off to try to save Leia. Last issue, of course, uh, he got away from his escort and was trying to do so. We also find out, through Prince Valorum, the Knight of Sith, talking to Darth Vader, the Imperial General, that contact was lost with the ship carrying the doctors from Alderaan that were supposed to go after and torture Leia here. Uh, we find out that the rebels with Datos that were mentioned back in the previous issue, they're the ones that uh, took care of that ship, which has helped Leia and eventually Anakin. Anakin winds up fighting against the stormtroopers, only to realize he can't fight in these tin cans. He can't fight in the stormtrooper armor and winds up taking off big chunks of it anyway. So that was kind of a waste of time. And Vader from remote control drops down some blast doors and releases some Jai gas and knocks out Anakin. He is now going to be a prisoner as well. But Vader tells Valorum that he may be useful. Take the Jedi to special interrogation section and use your Sith skills to find out his plans. As you wish, Darth. Meanwhile, the Y-Wing-type ships are on their way towards the Space Force, and we see on the inside of the lead one that there's two Wookiees flying it. Then you've got Han Solo and Luke and 3PO all inside that ship. So presumably, all of these other ships are nothing but Wookiee pilots. They give the go order, and on Aquilae, the underground, led by... Datos and the others, gets into action, though we aren't going to see much about what action they actually get into. Anakin awakens, basically contained in what should be sort of a torture-type chair, kind of like Leia's, only Leia was held spread-eagle by her wrists and her legs, kind of like an X hanging there, and Anakin is held to a chair more kind of like the way that we see Obi-Wan in Attack of the Clones. There's like energy binders around his ankles, around his hands, but He's held with his legs together and his arms down, kind of at an angle to his sides, as opposed to up like a Y or like an X. And we see a bit of conversation between Valorum, who takes off his mask to reveal there's no reason he's wearing it aside from, you know, just looking cool 
presumably, takes off his mask and has a conversation with Anakin. You, says Valorum, you were insane to come here. Why? For her. I can't believe your loyalty is that strong. You're a great warrior, but you're a greater fool. This is a place for androids, no codes, no honor. Our ways are useless here. Why couldn't you have stayed away? And in comes Vader. Finally, the great Jedi in person. And Valorum tells Anakin, silence. And in the conversation that follows with Vader and Governor Hodak, who's sort of like the Tarkin figure, um, they're basically mocking the Jedi and, and uh, saying he doesn't seem like he's much. And Hodak says that uh, your easy capture and public imprisonment should end the Jedi myth once and for all. And Vader, needing a moment to goad and belittle Valorum like he's been doing, says, Prince Valorum, the Sith, may be next. So you got this sense that the Empire really doesn't care for the Knights of Sith either, that it's all this this version of mysticism they want to get rid of, and you sort of get the sense here that Valorum is much more honorable than the Empire is, that the Sith are more honorable than the Empire, just like the Jedi are more honorable, that these are the Knights, good and bad, but Knights compared to, say, uh, the regular feudal power structure or imperial power structure that we're seeing here, which is very different than what we're used to with the Sith and something we'll get into here when we start discussing the issue. So the Y-Wings, for lack of a better term, start heading towards Aquilae, and there's the battle station, the Space Fortress. And battle commences between these stolen Imperial ships, remember, from Yavin, and the Death Star, or the Space Fortress. Anakin is being taken away to a prisoner transport. And at just the right moment, Valorum draws his lightsaber, slashes through Anakin's bonds, and tosses Anakin his lightsaber. And they go they both draw their red blades and have them crossed, and it looks like Valorum and Anakin are gonna have it out. Jedi and Sith must settle this honorably, Valorum says. Here and now. Fight, Jedi! But then he turns on the stormtroopers. Fight against the forces of tyranny! And attacks the troopers. And Anakin and Valorum tear through the troopers and escape together. But Anakin isn't willing to leave without Leia. Impossible. There are traps everywhere. You're mad! Anakin answers, It's love. Facepalm. Well, there isn't one in the story, but we're doing one because of the whole issue with how forced the love story is, as we saw back in our last episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. And they head off in... Supposedly, it looks like different directions as the battle in space is still taking place. Uh, however, Valorum essentially joins him, uh, trying to take out the Imperials. You know, uh, uh, it's kind of cool moment where Valorum steps up, says, kill him! And then, and that distracts them long enough for Anakin to get the upper hand, and then Valorum to kill the other trooper says, deception is still your way, Valorum. I seem to remember someone in disguise. Our ways are not so different. They go free Leia. She has her moment of sort of laying down uh, on the little shelf slash bed that's in there. Almost a, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper type moment, but he's not in armor, so we don't get that moment. She simply says, it's about time. And they head out. The three of them, needing a way out of there, they jump into a pressurized garbage chute where the three of them, a very different group than in the film, Leia, Anakin, and Valorum, get dumped into the garbage smasher. And... When Vader figures out that they're in there, him and Hodak, they purposely turn on the garbage smasher 
that starts to come in and about to squish them, except out in the space battle, one of the Wookiee ships takes a hit and, while damaged, does basically a, an, a, a Cernid, or how are you supposed to say his name, A-Wing on the Executor type moment, and does a suicide crash into uh, a power station type thing, this red contraption that's on the outside of the space fortress. And it knocks out the power that just happens to knock out the power to the garbage smasher, and they're able to get out and continue heading out of there. They happen to be met by R2-D2 as they're making their way through the hallway, and R2 reports, The power core has exceeded the normal stress quotient by 0.8. The magnetic fusion pods have evaporated. There appears to be immediate danger. They race for an escape pod. Meanwhile, in the command center, Vader and Hodak are discussing what's happening here. Vader says, they've pinpointed every terminal, which is impossible. You know what? You're right. It is impossible. They're freaking Wookiees in Y-Wings. Damn straight, it's impossible. Uh, what are they? Where do they come from? An electromagnetic transfer has started, and there's no stopping it. No matter, says Hodak, continue the fight. We've already lost control of the planet. We must abandon ship while there's still time. Conditions are much worse than... Continue the fight! This fortress is invince and kablooey. And explosions start taking place throughout the space station. Uh, thankfully, Valorum, Anakin, and Leia with R2 at their side are able to get themselves into the escape pod and launch away. And Anakin and Leia kiss as, boom, the space station blows up into a giant fireball. We move to the celebration scene, very much like we would see at the end of A New Hope or at the end of The Phantom Menace on Aquilae in the Sacred Throne Room where Leia is now the queen, of course. Uh, she gives a medal to Chewbacca, and we find that she's already given medals to 3PO, and R2, and Luke, and Anakin, and Valorum, and some of the Wookiees, and Han, and pretty much everybody, even the two boys, Biggs and Wendy, have gotten themselves uh, some medals at this point. Uh, R2 and 3PO are designated A4 droids now and will serve Anakin Starkiller, and Anakin is now the new Lord Protector of Aquilae. Hooray! Long live Aquilae! Long live freedom! And we get the odd sort of closing crawl of, as word of the destruction of the Space Fortress spread, a thousand new systems join Queen Leia and the Rebellion, causing a significant crack in the Great Wall of the Galactic Empire. The acts of Skywalker and Starkiller once again sparked fear in the hearts of the greedy and the malevolent, and a new sense of liberty, not felt for a hundred years, swept through the hearts of all. But our hero's greatest adventure was yet to take place, the one which would be known as the Saga of the Ofuchi. And issue eight is over with its ridiculous Wookiees in space, or at least these Wookiees in space, and the bizarre, complete reversal of the character of the Sith. Wookiees in space! You know, there were some things about the space aspect that had me scratching my head at moments. Uh, but I gotta admit, though, right out the gate, the whole head-swelling line of Anakin's, Neither helmet fits! Luke was right! I do have a swelled head, but I gotta find Leia fast, like... Classic, classic humor here. I, I enjoyed that. You know, I can take the humor for what it is. Uh, there's a question, though, I also had. There's the Jai gas. 
What is up with it? Since Jedi and Sith don't seem to be that different, how is it it's able to affect Anakin, but not Valorum? I mean, that was one thing that really threw me off. And and further, I mean, once Valorum proves that he's ready to turn against the Empire, why not just unleash Gigas on the entire ship and be the only person left on the ship awake? I mean, that seems like the automatic win right there. Uh, I like that Governor Hodak seems to be Tarkin. I did not catch that until we got to the eighth issue. And then, I'm, oh, okay. Uh, and, and you know, you had mentioned it where uh, Hodak had mentioned ending the Jedi myth once for all. And Vader's like, Prince Valorum, the Sith may be next. And again, there's that aspect of I wanted to know why that threat was there. You know, what was going on between them? Where was the relationship of the Sith to this new empire? Was there contention there? All that kind of stuff really, really got to me. I was like, come on, really? You know, I mean, that that's one of those aspects that I would have loved to have known more in the opening crawls or something when they first brought the Sith in. Because why were the Sith after Kane, Starkiller, and his boys in the first place if later they're willing to to change? I mean, was this just a Valorum thing? Was he the only Sith that felt this way? You know, was the Order all together on this? There, there was also another line that uh, Valorum himself had where... Anakin says something about it being love, and he says, uh, love, now I remember why our clans have fought for over a thousand years. And that whole aspect of the clans, like, I just thought that was interesting, because it was like, okay, so suddenly now, the aspect of the Jedi and the Sith feel more Mandalorian versus True Mandos and Death Watch. Like, that was an interesting twist, and that also added to Vader saying, you know, and the Sith may be next. I, I, I wanted to know a lot more about that, which gets to that aspect of, of how it ended with that promise of a sequel. Like, like it got me. I wanted to know more. Like, I'd be happy to find out Marvel is going to do, you know, a, a return to the Star Wars to give us this. But as they even mentioned in the letters pages, there is no battle or saga of the Ufuji. It, it's not there. You know, and they always they're encouraging you to go and check out the new Star Wars films and everything. It's like, ah, oh, so. That's completely dropped, which, you know, I can get it as an Infinity is a one-and-done style story. It works, but I do like the concept of going back. You know, when they did do the Infinity story and they had the three Infinities comics and each one was its own set universe, I would love to see them go back and, and flesh those out and do the same with this. You know, come back and, and give us a story every now and again in these alternate universes. I think that while in this case the story isn't great with this one, I think that because the second part of this saga hasn't actually been wrote, that there's a potential there to actually come back and make it a better story and, and you know, flesh out where this universe may go. I think that's kind of cool. The A4 droid aspect and the whole B23 and, and all those different things for him, I, I don't have an issue with that because when I think about droids in the, in the canon universe, you know, and even the Legends universe, their serial numbers were always big. They never exactly said how big the numbers were. There was always that that out that the number could have been almost infinite. You know, I mean, like, okay, take Legends, for example. Whistler is an R2-D2 droid, even though he's not classic R2, the R2-D2 that we know. They're both R2-D2s. I mean, he could be R2-D2-B5. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of angles they could play it. So that being there was kind of cool. And finding out that in this version, the droid's numbers change... It's cool because, again, sticking to Legends, you know, Minoc eventually became Gate and they changed his model number to R5G8 from uh, whatever it was as Minoc. And it was Wedge's same droid. He just had the droid refit. 
So, you know, I, I thought that was kind of a little cool thing. And Chewie getting his medal, like, I don't know. Is that like a tongue-in-the-cheek poke at the fact that Chewie didn't get the medal during the movie and even, you know, Adawan's Revisited had to go back and add that in because we could do, you know, tweak after tweak after tweak of this saga, but we could never give the Wookiee a medal. I mean, really, George? You couldn't give the Wookiee a medal and you couldn't fix that life pod hatch. But, hey, let's mess with who shot first over and over again. Really? So, so I, I, I go back and forth on all these different little things. Of it. But again, at the end of the day, this is a journey to find out what could have been. And in that regard, I find it a fun ride. I, I find it interesting and lightning. It isn't something I would say it's a great run. It's a must read. Heck no. Uh, but it's definitely one that it will pique your interest. And it'll give you an idea of the creative process that's come along and how Star Wars has evolved as a whole. That alone, I find it's worth the read. Let's see, uh, things that stand out in this one. Uh, I've already gotten into the whole thing with the Wookiees, uh, though I would simply add that there seems to be little point in the attack unless basically R2's schematics that he shows before he and Anakin head off to the Space Fortress is explaining, the schematic itself, is explaining where there are these, like, power nodes, these red things that are conveniently red sticking out of the Death Star so that that's what the Wookiees can attack. But that makes the Wookiee attack even more ridiculous because not only are they somehow apparently freaking Rogue Squadron now with fur, but they're having to do these precise attacks onto these specific spots on the Death Star to pull it off. Um, and I think from a storytelling standpoint, just kind of zooming back, it makes for a less thrilling finale if the space battle seems to be relatively aimless, almost. There's things they got to go after, but they're all over the place, so it feels like an aimless attack. Uh, that's why I think when you look at, you know, A New Hope with the exhaust port or uh, the power generators and the main core in Return of the Jedi, that works because you have the suspense of there is one specific target our heroes have to get there, destroy it, and hopefully escape alive. Yes, having the exhaust port was kind of ridiculous. Wow, this giant space station and there's one spot with an exhaust port where one hit there could wind up traveling, if it's lucky, all the way to the core and destroy the base? Dang, maybe you should put a shield on that or something. Um, I mean, there are ways you could argue that that is certainly ridiculous. But this... Because it lacks that level of precision of there's this one target, makes it feel much less suspenseful. The space battle feels disorganized, feels like it has no purpose. Um, in fact, frankly, it feels like them destroying the battle station is an accident. Like they were there maybe to buy time for Anakin or something, and it's an accident that they hit where they need to hit. Uh, in some cases, by the suicide attack by a ship that's too damaged to go on. So... The space battle doesn't really seem to work for me. Um, same thing goes with some of the lightsaber battling that we get here. Um, you watch a Star Wars film and you expect a massive lightsaber battle. Uh, Obi-Wan versus Vader in A New Hope, Luke versus Vader in uh, Empire and Jedi, or jump back to the prequels and you got the three-way one in Phantom Menace. You have kind of a three-way that becomes almost a four-way one when Yoda enters in Attack of the Clones. And you get the great Obi-Wan versus Anakin uh, duel of the fates type thing or duel of the heroes, etc., etc. thing that we get in Revenge of the Sith. Star Wars is iconic for lightsabers and lightsaber battles. And interestingly, this one really 
doesn't have one as part of the climax. We've got uh, Anakin and Valorum hacking their way through the hallways, taking out stormtroopers and the like that have lightsabers. But it seems as though at this point in the evolution of Star Wars, uh, Lucas really hadn't seen lightsabers as anything other than like blasters. They're just neat little sci-fi elements we get here. They're not particularly unique to anything or special, so they don't get highlighted as a focus of combat later on in the story. So lack of a lightsaber duel at the end detracts from the Star Wars feel of this, and I think it's something that a lot of people are going to notice is missing, even if they're not consciously realizing it. Maybe they're reading it and they it's like something feels lacking in that ending. Well, aside from the space battle seeming to have uh, some randomness to it, there is no lightsaber duel as part of this. This is all essentially a merry little chase that winds up happening. Um, then, of course, you've got the issue of Valorum. We find here that the Knights of Sith are very different. You get the feeling from the first issue that the Knights of Sith, as, as Mark was saying, was a lot like the Sith that we get in the Legends continuity and now the Story Group canon continuity. But this begs the question, why is that Knight of Sith there to kill the Star Killers. Why did he kill Deke? Why was it that Kane and Anakin had to go up against him and such? Uh, presumably it's because these clans have been at war for a thousand years, and this is just what they do. They go out and kill each other. But the idea of the Knights of Sith being evil is something that's undermined by Valorum here. Um, unless he is supposed to be the exception, of course, to the rule. Um, in that sense, Valorum becomes Teal from Stargate SG-1. You can sort of remember that that uh, scene back in Children of the Gods, the first uh, longer episode of Stargate SG-1, where Teal'c is about to kill a bunch of innocent captives, and O'Neill says, you know, I can save these people! Help me! Help me! And Teal'c does his whole, many have said that. And then he turns and blasts his comrades and says, but you're the first, I believe, could do it. You know, if that's kind of the moment we're supposed to be getting here with Valorum, that somehow Anakin being there and seeing the Empire and its oppressiveness all around him causes Valorum to have a change of heart that now he wants to save Anakin and he's going to join the good guys, which seems to be what he's doing here. He seems to be playing the Teal'c role. It's something that gets no setup, really, whatsoever throughout the course of the story. I mean, unless we're assuming that the reason why he is joining Anakin and fighting him is because he's sick of Vader mocking him. Now, that is, again, Vader, the general, mocking Valorum, the Sith, because they are two different characters... Um, it just seems odd and awkward when he does his, his 180 here. It doesn't really seem to work. And if not for Valorum's intervention, Anakin and Leia and the others would have been completely screwed. The ending of this story, the happy ending here, relies on Valorum changing sides, which is not something that is telegraphed anywhere else in the story and really feels out of place when it finally happens. The only element, though, that I can see of this that makes me sit back and wonder, huh, where was Lucas perhaps going with this? Is the fact, remember, in the actual film version of A New Hope, when talking about Obi-Wan possibly being alive and whatnot, uh, and talking to Tarkin, Tarkin says, you, my friend, are all that's left of their religion. And this idea that Vader and the Jedi are thought of as one religion, despite it being Jedi on one side, Sith on the other, Light side on one side, Dark side on the other. They are the same religion. They are the same society, but essentially different clans within that society, Light following and Dark following. Now that grows 
into a huge gulf and a huge difference in philosophy and way of life to the point where now we don't think of Sith and Jedi as one whole. We see them essentially as opposites, but not within the span of one particular society. Maybe that's where Lucas was going with the way things were written in A New Hope as we see it as a film. Because certainly it does seem by Tarkin's words that maybe we were expecting to see something a little bit more with the Jedi and Sith being part of one society, but just divergent clans battling themselves within the broader tapestry of an empire or whatever existed prior to that within this story and the films as we got them. Just, But again, from a storytelling standpoint, between the Wookiees and Valorum's very convenient change of sides, the ending of this series and this rough draft version of the screenplay absolutely fall apart and fall flat for me. Um, I, I would recommend it as a history lesson and what Star Wars could have been, and I would recommend checking out the Star Wars Timeline Gold and checking out summaries of this and all those other early drafts as they work their way towards the A New Hope that we know and love. Um, but certainly do not read this expecting to see a fun, fulfilling story. Even with everything else we know about Star Wars absent from our minds, in a complete vacuum, it is not a story that feels satisfying when you reach the end. And that, I think, is the way the comic series has to be judged. Yeah, I mean, you definitely got it there. there there's so many elements to this that are just missing. Uh, the backstory that's not there. I mean, you know, as we move into the Zero issue, you'd mentioned that that came out mid-series. And there's a part of me that's like, you know, was it coming out mid-run? It could have had more of the story elements in it, much like how Legacy did with their Zero and 0 0.5. Uh, you know, I mean, w when you look through it, they, they got things about the Sith, but there's very little about anybody in here. Like, this would have worked better as a Zero issue for before the series came out at all, because there is very little to be spoiled. And what they needed to do is put one out in the middle that had more of those details, more of what was going on with the Sith, more of the other Republic or the other Empire, whatever it was. And, you know, more of those details that, that are just flossed over. There's no context to them. And so, you know, there's that desire to learn more, but there's just no info there. And and that's the downside of this project. You know, I mean, while it's an interesting look into what could have been, there is no promise of more. So anytime your interest is piqued, don't expect it to be delivered upon. So there's that, too. Speaking of that zero issue, let's take a look at that real quick. Uh, again, it is sort of a cross between a sketchbook behind the scenes book and the kind of zero issues we got with as he mentioned, things like Legacy. Uh, bear in mind also, by the way, I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but if you are looking for those zero issues or zero and one-half issues of Legacy, don't forget that the uh, Empire of One trade paperback that includes the last story of Legacy Volume 2 also includes an updated version, basically, of that zero and one-half issue from Legacy. So you've got all of the content from that second version of that issue Plus, you've got uh, a few new pages, albeit not much, added in uh, to deal with stuff relating to Legacy Volume 2. So if you're a completionist, that's where you'll find that it was never released as a separate issue. The Star Wars Number 0 issue pretty much begins with a nice summary of what they're doing with this issue, plus with the series itself. It's uh, an article entitled, A Different Galaxy, and it says, How does one go about redefining and redesigning something so ingrained in our shared consciousness as Star Wars? Stick too close to what has been established in the films, and your efforts may be perceived as derivative or bland. Stray too far from established designs, 
and you risk losing the flavor altogether. So how do you make the exotic more exotic? First, you go back to the basics. You pull from the initial unused designs from the original designers who worked on The Star Wars. Delving into Lucasfilm's vast archives, we were able to find many hints as to what George Lucas had envisioned before subsequent versions of the script required newer or different designs to be produced. But events were moving quickly during the roll-up to production of that first film, and there are many, many characters, vehicles, and locations in The Star Wars that were never designed back in the mid-70s. So the next step is to assemble your own group of talented designers, all of them steeped in the milieu of Star Wars, and assign them different aspects of this alternate galaxy. That's what we did. Assembled here is a small sampling of the literally hundreds of designs produced for the series. But even with an entire team of designers at our disposal, the majority of the work fell to interior artist Mike Mayhew. Out of necessity to meet our schedule, Mike had to begin drawing the first issue before any of the other designers had put pencil to paper, and along the way we discovered dozens of devices and locations that had never been depicted. All told, realizing this series was a massive effort, but then Mike and the team were only designing an entire galaxy. And then it goes into a section that gives you basically quick um, sketches, some interior art from the series, and some notes on the designs of the different characters. Not so much uh, background in-universe, though in some cases there's references to that, but much more sort of why they're designed to look the way they do. You got a page on the Star Killers, one on Luke Skywalker, one for their allies, one called Bring On the Bad Guys, the Sith. Other forces of the Empire, Aqualand fighters, Imperial Star Destroyers, remember Star Destroyers all as one word, the little uh, uh, Starfighter-type craft, pilots, Baltarian freighter, the Imperial Capital, Imperial air tanks, and then a section called And So Much More that just points out a couple of things. Then there's a section on the covers, and it gives you one page with different sketches of covers or unused covers, depending on which one you're looking at, and then goes into the variant covers of issue number one. Uh, by Jan Dersima, Douglas Wheatley, and John Cassidy that we see. And then there's a really cool section, this is my favorite section actually, called How It Began. And it starts, uh, How It Began. Last, but certainly not least, we want to show you the pages originally commissioned from artist Scott Collins, I think that's how you say his name, that were shown to George Lucas to obtain his blessing for this project. These were produced from a plot-style script by J.W. Rensselaer, highlighting key scenes from the original screenplay. Colors are by Dan Jackson. And you've got this interesting version of some of the pages we got early on. There's the scene of the Sith, the Knight of Sith landing and going up against Deke and Anakin. And it's a very different looking Sith, much more samurai style. And we see Kane arriving and taking him out. Um, Kane looking you know, much more Jedi style, as we would think, as opposed to looking like uh, himself. You know, from this particular series, um, we get to see a brief look inside the cantina scene in which uh, Kane pulls off his power pack and winds up dying in Anakin's arms. Anakin looking a lot more like Luke in this case. We get to see a little bit of the primitive warfare that we get when the Wookiees are helping them attack the Imperial outpost, which is pretty cool. And then we get a brief one-page bit of the battle with the Space Fortress where instead of looking like they're flying basically prototype Y-Wings, you got a bunch of ships that look basically like Rebel Blockade Runners, Tantive Four-style Blockade Runners flying with a bunch of... Uh, they're basically X-Wings, but they look kind of like a cross between the X-Wings we know and love and the Star Furies from Babylon 5 of flying against the Space Fortress. So it's not just a background thing. It's a little bit of a sketchbook. It's a little bit of a cover gallery for the variant covers. And 
it's got that sort of let's see what things could have been. The artwork was very, very different, much brighter, much more uh, comic-looking, looking a lot like uh, some of the earliest Dark Horse stuff, the kind of stuff you would have seen in some of the, uh, uh, oh, I say the X-Wing stuff, like the Rebel Opposition uh, before mm-hmm. Nadal took over the series. And it just certainly different designs to it in this case. I like this as a behind-the-scenes type thing, but I, hate, I hesitate to call it a guide to the universe or anything like that. But it makes a cool little supplement to the series that if you've read the series, you ought to pick up. Yeah, supplement's a good way to describe this one. I, too, I like the back comic in there, the, the one that they used to describe everything. I like the fact that it did have that very classic, you know, comic feel of what Star Wars comics were. You know, I mean, you, you pointed out Rogue Squadron. I was thinking some of the early uh, Phantom Menace type stuff. But, yeah, the, the characters and stuff, it has a more what you would expect feel. And it's cool to see that. I think that this would have worked better if it was accompanied with a second you know, zero, like a 0.5, one that did work more as a guide. I, I know that like when the X-Wing books, they had those source books and stuff like that. Like those were really cool. And I think that a series like this could have been better served if they would have put something like that out as well. Maybe even if they would have waited like, like with this one where it came out more mid series or something versus giving you all this background and stuff before the series came out. So you're kind of more spoiled, but I, I really think that, that, the overall enjoyment of this this comic could have been enhanced had they given us a guide, something that kind of gave you more on, on the ideas of what was going on with the empires, because there was two of them, more of what was going on with the Sith and how they were helping exterminate the Jedi, why all that was going down, how it came about. Um, you know, you think about Legacy, uh, the comic, and the Sith and the Empire back then, well, back then, in the future... The Sith and the Empire, they team up to take out the Jedi. And so, you know, you have all these aspects of different groups working with each other that that help the story going on in Legends. It would have been nice to have something similar in that regard for this because there were so many moments along the way where it was like, okay, it piqued my interest, but there was nothing there to deliver the tidbits that I wanted. You know, I mean, I'm one of those fans that, that I like references to mysteries, but I also don't like them to be like what we get with back to the future where it's just a to be continued, but they had no plan on it. You know, I was one of those people when I, when I saw that, that wait was forever. It was like, what's taking them so long, you know? And so when they finally came out with it, it was like, yes, but, but looking back and realizing the reality was, was they just did that as a gag. Like the young version of me would have never got that. Like I would just have been ticked and pissed off, you know? I mean, and so that there's that aspect of me. That's like that. Like I want to enjoy this story as a story, as, you know, it was in Lucas's mind. And Lucas's mind has all those tidbits, you know. So, you know, we're not getting exactly even what Lucas intended because there's so much of the story that just doesn't make the page. And I, I think, like, if they were to have done a second one of these or even a source book specifically for that reason, where, you know, where when you get to the Sith and stuff, it's more than what we get here. I mean, this one, it is is literally just very small. I mean... The covers, it's cool because it shows you the alternate covers and things like that. And I like all the little sketches and stuff. It works as a zero issue. But for me, issues like the Sith, and you get to where it says the, the info about them. When we get to that point, it's like, the Sith. Even though Darth Vader is not among their number, the Sith still casts their shadow over the events in the story. As the opening scrawl tells us, the Knights of the Sith are a fierce and sinister warrior sect who have hunted the Jedi to near extinction. 
Despite their ferocity in battle, not all the knights of the Sith are brutes. Prince Valorum presents himself as cultured and aloof, and proves to be a match for General Skywalker, at least strategically. Even Darth Vader is awed by Valorum's presence. And that's it. Like, this really has nothing to do with the Sith. It more has to do with Valorum. I mean, so, you know, there are those aspects where it's like, I wish there was some more details, but the pictures, the designs, the concepts and all that, it works in the Zero issue. I just really think that the story itself could have been better served if they'd have given a source book or added some source book-like material to it just to give us some more of that that filling in the colors and stuff to give us that broader picture. All right, so before we hit the covers, let me kind of provide sort of a last thought from my perspective, and it's going to sound like I'm contradicting myself here in a way, uh, but... It is internally consistent, I promise. This comic series, as I've said, is not one you should read for general enjoyment. Um, it's going to fall flat. It really doesn't work. The story itself really doesn't work. And you should read it more as a history lesson in what Star Wars was in its rough draft form and be able to compare that to things that we see later. Uh, see where different terminology winds up coming back later and things like that. It's a great historical curiosity for a Star Wars fan. However, I will say, having read that original script several years ago, uh, kudos to Jonathan Rensler, writing a comic in this case, as opposed to a behind-the-scenes thing. You can uh, see a lot more information he gives about these earlier drafts in that The Making of Star Wars book, which is one of those great ones, Making of Star Wars, Making of Empire, Making of Jedi, that are out there. And if you pick up those, pick them up on iBooks, by the way, so you can get the enhanced version with all the video clips and everything. It's awesome, awesome stuff. Love the iBooks of these. Uh, Rinsler did a very, very good job of adapting Lucas's original script into this. Uh, Mike Mayhew, an insanely awesome, sometimes almost photorealistic, painted look to this series. The artwork is outstanding for the series as a whole, and Nick Runge's covers really evoke the, the, the movie poster type look that we would expect. You would almost expect these to be the kind of things that could have hung up just like uh, the ones we get for the prequels, just like that, that classic, for instance, that's based on Gone with the Wind for Empire. I mean, amazing covers, awesome interior artwork, and a very good adaptation. The problem isn't their work. The problem is that Lucas gives us a really weak story here with this rough draft. But again, I would argue, and this is where people are going to say, because I'm saying they're so weird, they're like, ah, that's contradictory. You've been ragging on this thing, and now you're saying they did a really good job. What? Let me take that one step further. I do not think that this series and how much the story doesn't work, or how little it works, I guess is another way of putting it, uh, I don't really think that that is a testament to how bad a storyteller Lucas could be. That this is just a crappy Lucas story and just needs to be dumped. Man, you know, it's a knock on Lucas that he could have produced something like this. Remember, he didn't. Oh, he wrote the rough draft. But Lucas changed it repeatedly until finally getting to the version of A New Hope that we have. And even then, some of it was changed during filming and during editing to create the film that came out in 77, was revised again in 97, and was revised again in 2004 and 2011, but let's not think about changes made to the Blu-ray, like the rocks that 
R2 hides behind from one angle that disappear from the other. Lucas, uh, when it comes to filmmaking, is outstanding. When it comes to creating a modern myth, he did an outstanding job. But he started at a very weak place. I would argue that it is a testament to George Lucas's brilliance as a filmmaker that he could take something that started like this and turn it into what it became. So I don't think this is a knock against the creative team behind the series. I don't think it's a knock against Lucas. I think it's a testament to how good this creative team was able to make something out of the relatively weak source material and how well Lucas refined his vision to create something great. Um, and kudos to Dark Horse for taking the time for one of their last projects to do something completely out of the box and take this early rough draft version of The Star Wars and actually produce it as a comic series, which really, honestly, as much hype as it got, may not be seen as a risk now, but I can't imagine it being anything other than a risk when they first started talking about it. So kudos to Dark Horse, to Runge, to Mayhew, to Rensler, and in refining it, of course, into the A New Hope we see in theaters, to Lucas for this story. It's just not one that works great as a comic series. Uh, reader, beware, but kudos to everybody involved. I mean, it's no secret these stories and stuff have been out there. I mean, Nathan, your timeline's got almost every single version of them out there. Most fans aren't that interested. And I, I think that Dark Horse was smart to put it in a form that many casual fans would get in their hands. Because I think a lot of them, myself included, just won't take the time to go out and hunt down the many versions of the saga as it was progressing. Uh, but I, I think there's a level of our fandom that we owe to ourselves to make this pilgrimage to kind of, you know, get a grip on where our own fandom lies and where the creative process came and what it is that we truly enjoy about it. Because even though the story fell flat, there were a lot of things about this that had that classic Star Wars feel that I really, truly enjoyed. And, you know, it, it again shows me that Star Wars was so brilliant at its time and so ahead of its time. And it took something so basic, like the Flash Gordon and the uh, Buck Rogers concepts and and turned it into pure gold. I mean, you know. Lucas takes homages to things later and did the same thing with the Clone Wars. You know, you'd have your uh, the Zorilla Beast with the Godzilla and the, and the King Kong aspects and you'd have the Hitchcock and all these things. And the one thing that that man has always been able to do is is take things that we love and give us a new twist on them. And so seeing Dark Horse take something that Lucas himself started and give us a twist on it and, and present it, I, I think it's a refreshing new way to come about things. It is something I'd like to see them do with other projects, maybe. Uh, you know, some things that got canceled and things like that. Like, it's nice to see them dwelling into a realm of infinities in a time where, you know, a lot of fans feel like Star Wars is falling apart. So seeing that was kind of a, a cool and refreshing aspect as well. If by chance you do want to check out those old scripts, by the way... Um... I haven't mentioned it in a long time because it's not really been something that's a big part of what I've been doing recently. Uh, but of course, my Star Wars Timeline Gold is part of StarWarsFanWorks.com now. But StarWarsFanWorks.com, that website and the timeline being there kind of spun out of another website where I used to have the timeline hosted. 
which now has a link to FanWorks in the timeline kind of by itself, uh, which is StarWars.com, but not StarWars, S-T-A-R-W-A-R-S.com, but uh, T-Bones, Lou Tambones, Star Wars with a Z dot com, S-T-A-R-W-A-R-Z dot com. My timeline used to be at that slash timeline. And now it's at StarWarsFanWars.com slash timeline. But if you go to Star Wars with a Z instead of an S at the end dot com, you'll find the menu page that'll take you to the different sites that are part of that network. Um, one of them is Starkiller, the Jedi Bindu script site. Uh, which you can go directly to with Star Wars with a Z instead of an S at the end dot com slash Starkiller. That's a website that includes tons of really cool writing and analysis and uh, and breakdowns of these scripts along with the scripts themselves. Uh, awesome. Awesome website to check out if you're looking for those old scripts. That's where years and years and years ago I downloaded copies of all those many different scripts that I then many years later got a chance to read through, and then summarize for the Star Wars Timeline Gold. So on my Star Wars Timeline Gold, what you're going to find is summaries of them like you would with the films, and any date references in them, like a thousand years of battles between the two clans of, you know, Jedi and Sith and everything, those are referenced on those timelines the same way they would be on the main timeline. They're just kind of their own little deal. But if you want to read the actual scripts, check out the Jedi Bindu script site, a.k.a. the Star Killer script site. Again, Star Wars, S-T-A-R-W-A-R-Z dot com slash Starkiller. I have nothing to do personally with the Starkiller script site. I just think it's awesome. A great, great resource. Now, moving into the covers for this, we've got 780, and then we will mention the hardcovers, because there was a deluxe and a regular, as well as the trade paperback and the number two Ralph McQuarrie one that we had missed on our first time through, because apparently they decided to do a variant on number two. Uh, kind of weird there. Seven, uh, it says, Enter the Sith, and it's got Valorum in the background. Uh, this one's got a lot of action going on, and I think that for me, that that overlayering action is, is kind of what turns me off to it. Uh, Leia's uh, strapped to the, the device that Darth Vader's torturing her with, and she's looking up at Valorum, who's looking down at her kind of ticked-off, angry, villain-esque, and she's screaming what looks to be like a, a, a classic horror movie I'm about to be knifed in the chest scream. Uh, and you've got Chewbacca looking very much like Chewbacca from the shoulders down, but every, you know, the, the head just looks like the Chewbacca from this comic and everything else looks like Chewbacca from the series, except for he's got two bandoliers going across him instead of just one. And he's got the ax coming down as he's dropping down on some stormtroopers. The action is cool and the colors are cool, but it's just really crowded for me. And I don't care for that. Uh, number eight, the last hope for the galaxy. This one's got a classic movie feel to it, which I enjoy, but the characters themselves feel off. I mean, most of the character art throughout this entire series does a really good job of nailing it. But I think for me, the, the Vader minus the, the face mask and stuff, and he's just got the, the helmet top. Uh, it just reminds me too much of Spaceballs, I guess. I don't know, something about it. And then the outfit that Luke's wearing, while it's one that they wore in the, in the actual arc, I just have a hard time with it on this cover. It just feels, uh, maybe it's too Flash Gordon for me. That's probably it. It, it feels very Flash Gordon. Uh, and then you got the Y-Wings coming around. One of them's being blown up and stuff. And Anakin's got the uh, red lightsaber blazing up towards the top and stuff. That one, I would say of these ones, I don't have a favorite there. I mean, if I had to pick of the ones of this episode, 
I would say it's going to be the Zero One, which is the official guide to a different galaxy with the uh, couple of the Star Destroyers that look like the A-Wings on there. You've got Leia, you've got Anakin, and you've got Luke, just their heads. And it goes from a color, you know, it's got full color illustration on Luke, and then as it drops to his jaw, the color starts to drop away. Anakin's hair has some of the color kind of reflecting from his face on the hair, but once you get to Anakin and Leia, it's all pencil sketch, and I, I kind of like that. So if I had to pick of this episode's covers, I would say it would be the Zero one. Uh, if you go into the Macquarie one of number two that we missed on the one, it's got that classic Ralph Macquarie posters feel. It's got the arch going underneath the Star Wars. The lines that Nathan talked about last episode uh, are very reminiscent underneath the Star Wars and stuff. But it, it, it's straight up, I believe it is a full-on Macquarie concept poster just redone as the cover. So the deluxe hardcover one is kind of cool. In fact, it kind of takes the Star Wars Beyond the Films approach. You know, it cuts it into three. Uh, you got three hardcovers that slide into a bigger hardcover. Very much like the uh, Luke Skywalker Last Hope of the Galaxy, how that one slides into one cover. This one's got three little ones that go into it. Uh, you know, I don't know if you have to have it. I was not one. I could care less. The other hardcover one, uh, it's got a really cool cover of the one of the first issue covers on it but it's got like a bluish gray background with a, a thick binding on it the trade paperback it's just another one of those covers that we saw already uh, we've shared it on the last two posts that we did for the last two issues of this but that hardcover one like i mean of them all it's the coolest looking one but for what you're getting i just don't know if it's worth the price i mean nathan what's your thought on the covers and the hardcovers well for the ones from this episode i mean they all work, I guess, uh, Zero, you know, uh, the official guide to a different galaxy. It's cool to see the sketches make up that cover, although honestly I'm not sure I would agree it's an official guide to the different galaxy. That's sort of a, a false advertising because of how we talked about it. it's not really like those other Zero issues in that sense. Um, number seven, not a fan of the goofiness of the way Chewbacca or the Wookiee looks on the cover, but uh, it works well enough. It's got the scared Leia. It's got Valorum on the cover with his mask and everything, which is neat. Um, interesting, though, that that issue on the cover says, Enter the Sith. Because, yeah, Valorum's on the cover. He's not in the issue. Valorum doesn't show up again until issue number eight. It's Vader who's torturing Leia, and he's not a Sith in this story. So it's kind of a weird name for the cover, because it's even talking about stuff that doesn't even happen. It's not just an image of something that doesn't happen. It's words advertising something that doesn't happen in the story. Which adds to the weirdness of the fact that Valorum's even there at all. Like, you wait till the eighth issue to have him come in and then have him be the reversal of fortune. Exactly. Um, the last one, number eight, I like the poster style. I think C-3PO looks kind of goofy, and Anakin looks like he's kissing the air. Um, but it works as a movie-style poster in that sense, and as goofy as Vader looks with his helmet on, very uh, Spaceballs-esque. That is what he looks like on the inside. He does have that helmet. He just doesn't have the face mask. So at least it's, you know, mirroring one of the looks of the character, although we don't see him with that helmet very much within this story. I mean, I like the covers for all of these. Um, I will say it's kind of a weird thing to do the variant cover that they do with number two that you mentioned. Uh, it is an old Macquarie painting that's used uh, as a promotional tool for early versions of the story. But it doesn't make sense, because it's not this version of the story. It's the version where um, Luke is the, the Jedi student, 
except it's not Luke the boy, it's Leia and Luke as one character. It's when basically Han and Obi-Wan were one character. Chewbacca is a sidekick for them, and then the droids are there. It's a different variant, not of covers, but of sagas. So it makes <laughs> absolutely no sense to be on the cover there. It'd be as if we had a cover for an adaptation of, let's say, Return of the Jedi, and used one of the covers from Infinity's Return of the Jedi. Different continuities, different storylines, doesn't make sense. Um, well, but that was just a variant cover in that case. They just, it, for whatever use, reason, used imagery that doesn't make sense. It does illustrate, though, the current trend that Ralph McQuarrie equals Star Wars of late. Like, there seems to be this public perception that the classic trilogy was Star Wars, and the prequels were a failure, and the reason was because Ralph wasn't involved. So let's go back to Ralph's stuff. And and no one's saying that specifically, like, but there is that feeling you're getting, like, like if if they throw McQuarrie on there, then well, hey, that's Star Wars, and that's okay, it'll sell. You get to the trade paperbacks. Um, I mean, personally, I've not picked up any of them because I pick up the individual issues at this point. I have gotten rid of any of the trade paperbacks that I have, except that they contain new material. Or if it's an omnibus-style trade paperback of, say, the Marvel stuff, for instance, because I don't want to wind up damaging my original Marvel issues to go back and read them. Um, so I'm not really a trade paperback kind of guy. And the price tags, to a degree, uh, bear this out for me. The original issues were $3.99 each. Okay, so 4 bucks each. You figure there's 9 of them. You're getting close to 40 bucks once you add in sales tax and whatnot, depending on where you live and all. So it is somewhat cost-effective to get the trade paperback if you're really wanting to check out this series um, and you're not caring about the individual issues. But bear in mind the way that these work, right? The Star Wars trade paperback, the one that is actually a paperback, like any other trade paperback of a series, is 20 bucks, basically. $19.99 cover price, but you can find it plenty of other places, you know, uh, at a slight discount and whatnot. But understand, if you pick that up, it's the eight issues, one through eight. You do not get the Star Wars number zero, the sketchbook type thing, in the regular 20-buck trade paperback. So you have basically $32 worth of comics for 20 bucks, but you don't get an extra four bucks worth of content with number zero in that one. To do that, you got to pick up the Star Wars in hardcover. Um, they're both using the Nick Runge cover. Uh, one of them is basically... Uh, the entire cover is the Nick Runge cover. Uh, the hardcover has sort of more of a, a, a framework going around, a framing thing going around it, and the image is like in the center. Um, in that case, you will get one through eight in that nice little hardcover, and you'll get number zero as part of the hardcover, but it's going to cost you extra. It's going to cost you 40 bucks. So it's going to cost you $4 more approximately than buying all nine issues individually to get the nice hardcover. This is not a more cost-effective way, but it's all together, and it's a nice hardcover for your shelves. Um, the deluxe hardcover that separates it out into three separate little hardcovers that go in the little slipcase type thing, um, it's nice, it's pretty, it's cool, and if you're really, really into this as a historical Star Wars thing, and you like those type of deluxe collected versions, like that gallery edition or whatever it's called of one of the Dark Times stories that just came out, I mean, I could sort of see someone wanting to pick this up and put it on the shelves, but to me, it's 
probably not worth it. Uh, of the different parts in it, you've got ones based on the different variants of the number one cover for a couple of them, and then you've got the number zero cover used um, for the cover of, of one of the volumes that's in it. Um, it is um, foil-stamped covers, which is kind of cool. Um, it is an oversized box set, which is kind of cool. Um, but to me, I don't know. Getting all those together in the slipcase and all, it's pretty, but... It's $100. It's $99.99. It costs you five times as much as the trade paperback to get that deluxe hardcover, and more than twice what you're going to pay, the $40, for the regular hardcover edition. you got to be seriously hardcore as a Star Wars collector, or seriously hardcore on the Star Wars to want to get that one. They certainly all look nice, but not sure if, if I would be spending the money. Then again... I'm someone who is prone to drop a hundred bucks on a rare version of Star Wars on home video. I just recently spent a little less than that much um, on the 1983 little stereo wear compatible red band instead of red triangle non-hi-fi version of A New Hope on VHS to complete that part of my collection. So who the hell am I to talk about you know, what you should be spending your money on? Well, you know, it does bring up that question. Overall, did they go nuts with the covers and the alternate versions of this? And, and, well, I'm going to ask Nathan this question here in the episode. That's a ponder that I would love to get some feedback on the episode comment section on our Facebook page. Do you think that all the versions of number one, the two versions of number two, and the trade paperback, the hardcover, and the deluxe hardcover editions of the collected series is just a little excessive? for a series that may not have merited the need. What do you think, Nate? And listeners, please hit us up with the comments. I would say, hey, this is one that they could certainly justify it. Um, something like doing that with Star Wars number one, uh, or Star Wars volume two number one with Brian Wood, getting a whole lot of hype and not having content that really justified all the hype that was just contradictory, annoying, cool artwork, but certainly nothing that said Brian Wood has made a positive impact whatsoever on Star Wars. That was overly excessive. With all the sketch covers and the regular covers uh, and the special variants that you can only get at certain places and all that, that's ridiculous. I would even say that Darth Maul's Son of Dathomir, as cool as it is being unproduced Clone Wars scripts and the one Dark Horse comic series to carry over also into story group canon, not just Legends, that probably really didn't need to have as many variant covers as it did. The sketch cover, the Atlanta cover, um, the different covers where it's sort of the same image, but one's zoomed in and one's not on his face and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's kind of going overboard. We're getting into Marvel Comics or 1990s comic territory that used to really annoy the crap out of me and drives collectors nuts because nowadays it's so hard to get some different types Um with the with a uh, Star Wars Volume Two, they even had those special ones you could buy through, uh, I forget who it was, Dynamic Forces, I think it was. There was like, and Brian Wood has signed it. Look, he signed it in a gold pin, in a silver pin, in this, in that, and hey, we're gonna make them cost a lot more based on which color pin he signed it in, because he only signed a certain number in that freaking color pin. That is excessive. That's where Dark Horse went off the rails after so many years of not doing much except maybe gold logo versions of Star Wars comics that really had me respecting them for not going down that crazy variant edition road. This one's a special thing. 
It was hyped up a lot for people who weren't regular Star Wars readers or Star Wars collectors. A big thing within the Star Wars and the comic community that they were going back and picking up Lucas's original version of the rough draft version of Star Wars for this. I think that was a big event by itself. We as Star Wars readers picked it up as this weird oddity or a history lesson. For media watchers and those that don't regularly read Star Wars comics, I think this was a big, big deal. And the fact that aside from the one oddball that doesn't even fit uh, with number two, all the other variants were for number one. And they were people like Douglas Wheatley and Jan Dersima, um, who we know through Star Wars and can kind of appreciate seeing giving their takes on these. I think that was worthwhile. I still think it sucks to have variants if you're a hardcore completionist. And you've got to have every version of it, because some of these are pretty tough to find and kind of expensive at this point. But it made sense that this would be something where they'd take at least number one and do some variants. I don't think we needed it for number two, but at least for number one, they could justify it. Same thing with the different collected editions. It's a comic series. You want to trade paperback. But this was something different in the annals of Star Wars history. It makes sense that this, like some others in the past, would get a hardback edition. To have a hardback version and a deluxe hardback with a slipcase and everything, that's probably excessive. They probably could have gone with one or the other. But yeah, for all the series of Star Wars, this one being something sort of outside the norm and appealing to people outside of the regular Star Wars comic readership, I think they could very easily justify this. So, except for the extra one of number two, not excessive. Not my cup of tea, but not necessarily excessive. Not like some of the other things they've wound up doing recently. I, I think for me, the, the fact that they made a second one in number two was the one that, that got me. I, I was like, why not just make one more number one? Because there was nothing really about that cover that screamed it was number two. Uh, you know, you, you put it all out there in, in a way that I have to agree. I, I think, you know, moving into an age of Marvel... There's a part of me that's a little trepidatious about variants because I know what Marvel does. And it was a weird trend to see Dark Horse start ramping it up. Like you had mentioned, you know, they they didn't start out putting out a lot of variants, although they kind of ended it that way. Uh, but this one, I, I'm, a, I'm in agreement with you, I think, because it's the Star Wars, because it's a rough draft, because it has Lucas attached to it in the way that it does, that those covers will sell. I like you, I'm not going to be getting any of them. I'm not getting the trade. I'm not getting the hardcover one or the deluxe hardcover because I got them in the singles and I don't need them in anything else. The Darth Maul one, I did go out and get the trade paperback of it afterwards only because that was a unique beast and it falls under two continuities. And so I want to be able to put it with, you know, legends and then I want to have it on my canon shelf. So, you know, in that one, I made a call. And I think that at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to with all your Star Wars fandom. Call it how you see it and go with what you love. And if you love to hate, well, try to keep it to yourself. And hey, from Dark Horse's perspective, you got variant covers of this. You got variant covers for Star Wars Volume 2, uh, the first several issues, including those sketch covers and whatnot. You've got variant versions of some of the first issues of Legacy Volume 2. We even got two different cover versions for each issue of Rebel Heist, not counting ones that are special for conventions. Dark Horse is nearing the end of its time with Star Wars. Uh, it basically is done putting out new issues. It's got less than a month at this point now, probably by the time you're hearing this, or just over a month, before its license is completely gone. If you know you're about to have to kill the cow and salvage what meat you can, 
get as much milk out of it as possible before you gotta pull that trigger. And that's kind of what Dark Horse seems to have done. Um, from a business standpoint, it's another way to make profits. I'm not sure we can necessarily fault them much for that, but I really feel for the hardcore collectors out there. Uh, Eddie Vander Heiden, Carlos Munoz, and all these people out there who really get into picking this stuff up in every version. Because Star Wars has become more of a hunt thanks to this last year, year and a half of comics from Dark Horse and their variants than it usually would have been in the past. <laughs> Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes and the rest of the Second Airborne streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review there on iTunes while you're at it. Help us grow as a show. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films and you browse the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with your fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or you slash legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanlords.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. They have a trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Legends universe. You can explore the canon universe. You can explore Harry Potter or even the Kim Harrison books. It doesn't matter because any genre out there and you have no risk of being stuck with a book you hate. Because within one year or 12 months, you can exchange any book with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this is Ben, Mark, and Whistler. And Nathan, who's free soon. Say thanks for listening, and may the force of others be with you. And don't quote us the odds that those who enjoy this show take the time to check out Mark's recent appearance on Rebels Roundtable and like our Facebook page for that, facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable, because we love the show. What are the odds you did that right now? Last, but certainly not least, we want to show you the... Blah. Last, but certainly not least, we want to show you the pages originally commissioned... F what was his name? Kane. Kane. I see little to no point for the boy... For the boy... And Han... And Han... Blah. I'm having all kinds of trouble today. <laughs>